Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Just a couple of quick announcements before this week's show, a show we're recording and posting on Saturday, a day earlier than usual because Sunday's Easter. First, I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new voice on our Twitter feed, Trey, who some of you might know from the Politics Guys newsletter. Now, like me, Trey's a political scientist, but unlike me, he's right of center. Because Jay's not able to tweet, you know, he's off too busy crushing the little guy on behalf of his corporate paymasters or something, um, I, I thought it would be a good thing to bring in a conservative voice on the feed. You can check out his tweets and mine by following us on Twitter. We're at Politics Guys. Second, at some point in the near future, we plan on putting together a listener survey to get your feedback and work to give you more of what you want and less of what you don't. Now, as a political scientist, I've done a lot of surveys over the years, and one thing I've always found to be really helpful is to gather some information from a sort of a focus group before I start writing questions. And here's where I'm hoping some of you might be willing to help us out. If you have any thoughts about things like uh, things, well, things you like, things you dislike, uh, things you want more of or less of, or really any comments, critiques, or observations about how you think we can make the show even better for you, it would be really helpful if you could let us know. You can either send these thoughts to us through email, we're at mail at politicsguys.com, or you can message us on our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash page. Thanks in advance for taking the time to help us out. And now, on to this week's show. The United States' already difficult relationship with Russia has taken a turn for the worse this week. President Trump, who initially seemed to be a big fan of Russian President Vladimir Putin, said Putin was partly to blame for the conflict in Syria and denounced Putin's support for Syrian President Assad, who he called an animal. Now, Trump also suggested that Russia may have known that Syrian forces were planning a chemical attack and did nothing to prevent it, though other U.S. officials cautioned that this is definitely speculative. Now, Russia, which still claims that Syrian forces did not launch a chemical attack, is now asking for a formal UN investigation of the source of the attack. And meanwhile, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was in Moscow this last week, where he met with his Russian counterpart, as well as with President Putin, which is a meeting that many were concerned wouldn't even take place, given the level of tension between the two countries. So, Jay, I was looking for your take on this, particularly, you know, those people who are now saying, well, this proves that there was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, because if there was, relations wouldn't be that bad. What do you think? Well, I certainly think if there was, and this was Vladimir Putin's secret plan, it it hasn't worked out well for him. Uh, and and to the extent that uh, if there was fear that, that Trump would somehow uh, go soft on the Russians, uh, again, that doesn't seem to, to have happened. I mean, he's sort of stirred up the hornet's nest and he had sort of a opportunity to even maybe step back, but he didn't. Uh, and to, to, I think to his credit. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I don't know that you can go and say this proves that there was no collusion. I, I don't think there was any collusion in the first place. Uh, but this certainly would be evidence that, uh, if there was, it's that that problem has been sort of sort of cured. I mean, if we're concerned that uh, uh, Trump is somehow a patsy for Putin, it, it certainly doesn't look that way. 
Well, you know, I, and there are, there are, of course, the deep, deep conspiracy theorists who are saying that, well, no, this would maybe be something that they worked out in advance and sort of throwing it to kind of throw people off the scent. And I, of course, I've been from the beginning a little less, uh, uh, a little less sanguine than you are about there not being a relationship. But uh, that aside, I mean, I think certainly that this points out that the difficulty of having any sort of a better relationship or a reboot as so many you know previous presidents have tried to do with Russia because our strategic interests are just so very different at this point that it's not like you can just get together with somebody look into his eyes or have a beer or something like that and everything's going to be fine yeah or hand, hand them a restart button um yeah and and I think it also could be uh, Trump you know candidate Trump uh it's easy to say, hey, I want to have better relations, and I think we may, may have a common enemy in ISIS and so forth. Um, but now that he's in office and has access to more information and is, you know, there, there's also, this may sound a little weird, um, but as president, it, it now looks, and we're going to talk about this later in the show, uh, that he is taking the advice of some of the more establishment type uh, figures in his administration. Uh, and this this could be the example of he's getting a more clear-eyed view of what's going on in Syria and the potential of whether or not we can have a strategic alliance with the Russians that, that he might have hoped for. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely agree with that. I, on the one hand, the, the Democrat in me and the anti-Trump person in me sort of gets this little visceral thrill when, you know, you see the, the the tweets from Donald Trump, you know, before he was president, clearly contradicting stuff he's doing now. But on the other hand, I think as a political scientist, and, you know, along with what you're saying as well, that it is different being president and you, you are privy to a lot of information that you weren't privy to before. And that, you know, we, you would hope that that changes you, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah. And, and also it, it's a matter of, uh, you know, as a as a candidate, there there is no responsibility now. Things are on his watch, uh, and and he's he has to do something about it. Uh, so I, um, yes. yeah, I, I think this this is a you know sign of I don't I don't know if I want to say growth because I, I think he's always been of the the type of he said look if there's you know I'm gonna have red lines and I'll enforce them and and so forth. So it's it's not entirely inconsistent, although you could you could pretty much take anything he said in the campaign and find some consistency or inconsistency because he sort of said everything. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I think I, someone, um, wrote, I believe probably the wall street journal that in a lot of ways, Trump is now at least, and again, and we do this in sort of Trump time during the last week or two has looked pretty much like a, a regular typical mainstream Republican president would. Uh, so, Again, that gives me some comfort. I'm not sure, sure. how much it does you, but uh. well, yeah, and 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 like you said, we're, we're going to talk at, about that at length later on in the show. But for now, kind of turning back to the, the the Russia thing and the Syria thing, I guess two questions a lot of people are asking is number one, are we going to get more, more deeply involved in Syria, and if so, you know, in what way, and and number two, are our relations with Russia going to continue to spiral downward? Do you have a Do you have a sense on either of those things, or a prediction on either of those things? I think. Well, I mean, predictions are tough, especially about the future. But uh, I'd say yes and yes. Uh, I think we will have more involvement uh, in in Syria and in the Middle East. I mean, the other thing that Trump did last week was drop the the wonderfully named uh, mother of all bombs 
um, on on ISIS, uh, and it has shown that he's going to be more activist uh, in, in the Middle East. And there are the statements from from uh, Tillerson, the statements uh, that that if if not saying uh, our policy is regime change, uh, making clear that. Uh, nothing good is going to happen while Assad is still in power. Uh, you know, is sort of just just short of saying we want to remove Assad. Um, so he's he's going to do more. Uh, I I don't think it's going to be at least in the short term. Uh, you know, moving troops in, but I, I would expect more missile strikes. And he's talked about setting up uh, what he's called safe zones uh, in in Syria to help stem the the flow of refugees out of out of Syria. And I think that'll that'll be a positive thing. Um, Will relationships with the relationship with Russia get uh, worse, uh, at least for the time being, because of that? Certainly, um, but uh, I, I think that eventually the Russians are are going to to blink, as it were. I think they like to keep Assad in power, uh, but I don't think they're willing to uh, to go to war with the United States to do so. Well, yeah, and I I, I tend to agree with you, and I, of course I certainly hope you you're right. And and I guess I would also point out that it seems like what the Obama, the previous Obama administration had been doing wasn't really working for, for a whole host of reasons. This is a, a, a wicked hard problem. And so I, I think we probably do need to try something different, though. I, I'm always a little, uh, I look a little askance at kind of ramping up the, the, the military action, especially when the Russians are involved, though. I, I think I share your uh, hopefully not too optimistic view of what's likely to happen in the near future. Yeah, and I think, look, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, that's just the nature, I think, of, of this kind of a problem. And right. uh, I, I think Trump realizes that. And, of course, the Russians are going to continue to make the pronouncements and saber-rattling and so forth. And, um, yeah, but, and, but I mean, uh, the, you know, the point as, being— As Margaret Thatcher, uh, uh, you know, once said, now's, now's not the time to go all wobbly. Well, yeah, you know, and I, I understand that. But the, also what people say is, you know, that with the saber rattling and so forth, and, and the Russians now have said that they're going to not share this information about that, you know, with the with the Americans so that we wouldn't necessarily have our have our uh, aircraft and so forth, the crossing paths, which is something we don't necessarily want, uh, that, you know, when you look back at previous wars, if in hindsight, think, well, how did we ever, how did that ever happen? These were so many stupid miscalculations and things. And I think that's what a lot of people are, you know, rightly concerned about now is you get to that brink and sometimes all it takes is, you know, a little incident and neither side wants to back down. That's that's what happens with some of these games of chicken. And there are, you know, there could be uh, hundreds, thousands, potentially even, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of lives at stake on, on both hands and um, on both sides, not not only accounting for, you know, Syrian, but Russian and, and U.S. life. So this is some serious business. Yeah, yeah, and I think you balance the the potential of a miscalculation, which is always out there, uh, with the can we live with the status quo, and and I right. I would you know make the make the case that it, we've probably reached a point where we can't live with the status quo or the status quo, uh, the certainty of what will have bad stuff that will happen uh, if we continue continued on the path we are on, uh, uh, is worse than the uh, risk of of what could happen right. going forward. Yeah, I certainly don't think there are any. And I'm not, again, I, you know, it, we're always in a position where, you know, you, when it comes to these foreign policy and intelligence kind of questions, you and I are pretty much in the same position as anyone else. Uh, uh, you know, we don't have any access to any special briefings or anything like that. Um, I'm just saying, I think that's, that's the calculus that, that 
you know, leaders are going to have to make. Sure. You know, not a lot of good choices. And, you know, speaking of bad choices or not a lot of good choices, there were a number of disturbing developments regarding China and North Korea this week. Uh, Intelligence analysts say that North Korea is likely to conduct its sixth nuclear test sometime very soon, with each test has been demonstrating that the North's nuclear program is becoming more advanced and more destructive. And on April 15th, the birthday of Kim Il-sung, the founder of the communist North Korean state, there was the usual massive military parade. And, you know, some of the weapons on display there were missiles that are theoretically capable of reaching the mainland United States if they're launched from North Korea. And uh, President Trump has reportedly told Chinese President Xi Jinping that he'd be willing to give a little bit on trade if China takes a harder line on North Korea. But he also said, that's kind of the carrot, but he also said that if China doesn't do anything, the United States might be forced to act unilaterally. And the Chinese have claimed that they're applying greater pressure, but recent economic data shows that their trade with North Korea is up 37.4% from this time last year, and Chinese imports of North Korean iron are up 270%. So uh, what do you what do you think about the relationship between China and North Korea? I mean, how much pressure can we put on China to put on North Korea, and how do you see this playing out, Jay? Well, I think I think we already are putting pressure on China. I think it's getting getting some response. I mean, there was the uh, phone call from President Xi uh, back to Trump, uh, you know, the day or so after uh, uh, President Xi left Mar-a-Lago um, regarding North Korea and what are we going to do? And it, it there is the sense, again, as it's reported, that the Chinese are taking this more seriously than they have before. Uh, what with, uh, you know, the, the bombing in Syria uh, and just the, the the fact that Trump, that Trump is sort of a wild card. Um, the other the other thing that you know really have to consider is yeah these missiles that the North Koreans are showing off right now if they work uh, could it reach is. mainland America. Now the the piece that that no one knows about or at least no one in the public knows about for sure yet is whether they could uh, attach a nuclear warhead to one of these missiles. Um, but we're we're getting to a point where that's going to be one of those those red lines because I think if you're the president of the United States, uh, no matter what, I, I don't think you can allow the situation to happen where you've got a madman with a nuclear uh, nuclear missile that can can hit the uh, uh, mainland U.S. I think that's just one of those red lines that that you have to cross, and I, and I would be hopeful that the Chinese would would get that too. Um, that, that we're, we're fast approaching a point where, um, you know, it, it was just simply uh, untenable for, for us to, to allow that, that situation to exist. Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, when we talk about unilateral action, all, all, we're talking about military action because already our negotiating stance with the North is that uh, we will not talk with them until they give up their nuclear ambitions. And there's no way that's going to happen. So we basically don't have any sort of diplomatic talks with them at all. So if we were to do anything, it would have to be in the military sphere. And and people are talking now about preemptive strikes and so forth. And this is some, you know, and and some people are saying that mother of all bombs that we dropped in, you know, in the in the caves of Afghanistan there that mm-hmm. this was as much about uh, uh, North Korea sending a signal to them as it was about uh, fighting terrorism in Afghanistan. And, you know, maybe Absolutely. there's something to yeah. that. So, yeah. but, but again, this is another situation where we don't have a lot of, of good options, but you're right that the situation gets to a point where someone at some point is going to have to do 
something. And, and as, as North Korea becomes far more capable, uh, that someone, you know, might, might have to be President Trump. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll see the Chinese may yet uh, be able to, to step up and do something. Uh, we should point out, we, you know, the United States tried diplomacy with the North Koreans in the 90s. Um, and Madeleine Albright went over there. And remember, we got uh, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, or I'm sorry, Kim Jong-il, uh, signed basketball uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and and it, it didn't get us anywhere. It was a nuclear deal where they were, you know, not going to pursue nuclear technology. And, and you know, here we are. So right. um, I think it's it's we've reached the point of there's really no negotiating with with this kind of, uh, you know, crazy regime. Um yeah. Uh, I mean, at I, least, you know, between between us and them directly. So I think absent absent regime chains, we're, we're just not going to get the, the result that we not only that we want, but I think that we that we really need, because it's like, as you pointed out, it's you know, it's one thing to have a, a hostile power with nuclear weapons capable of striking your sure. country. We've had that with Russia for, you know, for uh, for generations. But it's the stability of the people at top. That and, and the stability of the system, and it's such an incredibly unstable person and unstable system. That's the you know that's the serious concern. And, and again, sure. and as much as as much as someone like you know Vladimir Putin uh, runs Russia with an iron fist, uh, there there are still there is a broader uh, you know coalition of people upon whom he depends and who he has to work with to to uh, run Russia. Uh, Kim Jong Un is sort of a, a one-man government. Uh, and, and I don't know that there is that uh, any other voices of caution or any other uh, person who's more rational waiting in the wings or whispering in his ear. Right. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, as much as as Putin uh, is a bad guy, uh, he's he's not uh, crazy. Yeah, and that, that makes and, a and difference. And I don't think the same can be said for, for Kim. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. You know, before we get to our next our, sorry, our next story, we should thank our new supporter this week. It's Joe from Nashville. She's our newest continuing monthly supporter through Patreon. Joe writes. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks so much, Joe. Yeah, just a little message here. You are the only reasonable politics show out there, which, of course, makes you both certifiably insane. <laughs> <laughs> and she says. Uh, my contribution is specifically to help cover the psychiatric care that goes into discussing politics on the internet, and you can use my contribution for conventional treatment or for fine Kentucky bourbon. It's all the same to me. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, Thank that you, was Joe. a great comment. Uh, now, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Joe did last week. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links. You'll see there. Every donation helps no matter what the amount is. And finally, as always, it would be a big help if you could spread the word about the show by sharing and retweeting our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Okay, on to our next story, some domestic politics. You know, whenever a new president takes office, he needs to fill out his administration. And typically, a number of those slots go to current members of, of Congress, almost always members from the president's party and invariably from safe districts or states so that the appointment doesn't result in the opposition party gaining seats in Congress, which you don't want. Now, two of President Trump's appointments seem to fit this mold. He named Kansas Representative Mike Pompeo as the CIA director and Georgia Representative Tom Price to run Health and Human Services. And both men had easily won their last elections, priced by just over 23 points and Pompeo by a whopping 32 points. 
But while a Republican did win in the special election held this week to replace Pompeo, it was only by seven points, and that was with minimal party support for the Democratic candidate. And in Georgia, which holds its special election this coming week, Democratic John Ossoff is far ahead of all his rivals, though he's short of the 50% plus he'll need to avoid a runoff. But, right. but Jay, you know, do you think this is a sign of things to come in the 2018 midterm elections, or is it nothing much for Republicans to worry about? You know, I've seen there was there was some cautionary um, uh, pieces out there last week, uh, saying Republicans should take notice, and certainly they should. Uh, that these races are closer uh, than maybe they ought to be. Uh, I would I would look at it a little differently and say we've got a couple things going on. One, these are special elections uh, where you don't get uh, a tremendous turnout. Uh, they're special elections in highly Republican districts. Meaning the the turnout advantage that you would expect in a general election would be highly Republican. Uh, special election, you can get wound up a, a base of of uh, um, you know the angry insurgents uh, sort of who who will will show up, uh, but your your regular voters won't. So I think I think the numbers are a little skewed, uh, and I think it's it's a little uh, you know this this you know the Trump resistance sort of playing into this and funneling money into races that would not be anywhere near competitive, uh, but are still a little competitive. Uh, and I, I think the other thing is at the end of the day, the more or less uh, establishment Republican candidate has won. So I, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot to be, uh, to be seen as this is part of a broader picture. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't be. Um, but it's, it's one thing when you have a couple of these, again, special focused, special elections, uh, off, uh, off season times essentially. And as opposed to competing across the board in uh, congressional elections across the country. Well, you know, I, I said, and, I, and also though, the other thing I'll, I'll throw in is they, they, all these by, by definition, because there's special elections like this, these are all open seat elections where you don't have an incumbent who would other ha otherwise have that advantage, which, which could, you know, that's another five, 10 points right there. So yeah. uh, again, it, I think if you're a Republican, it's something to be watchful of and, and realize that we can't take every seat for granted. Um, but I don't see any need to, to push the panic button. Yeah. You know, I think that's a, that's a really good point, especially the thing about incumbency, incumbent advantage. I mean, that's a, that's a huge issue. And, uh, you know, also 2018 is, is a long ways off. I was talking to uh, political science, uh, uh, political scientist, Larry Sabato, just a few days ago for an upcoming interview. And, you know, he, which is, which is very cool because Larry Sabato is huge and a genius. And that's, that's awesome that you interviewed him. So everybody tuned in to listen to that. Yeah. That, go that, on. Yeah. Well, it was a great <laughs> interview, but, uh, so he was, he kept on saying, you know, 2018 is such a long ways away. And, and, you know, that is, that is an important point to make, but even so, you know, uh, there's clearly an enthusiasm gap here, understandably so, I would think. And, you know, yeah, well, that's, but that's also and, and Larry Sabato would tell you this, too. That's uh, always always the case in the first uh, midterm election after a presidential election. Well, sure. And that will be 2018. And so, yeah. I, I mean, while uh, while, of course, not of course, but while there's almost no chance of Democrats taking the Senate in 2018, just because how how the the setup is and how many seats the Democrats have to defend in 2018. What turf they have to defend? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's looking like you know certainly if they can if Democrats can maintain this level of enthusiasm, 
And that's a huge if, you know, they have a shot at uh, another one of these what are called sometimes wave or tsunami elections. It happened to it happened to Barack Obama and his presidency. It's not at all an uncommon thing. And it, it certainly could happen here, though. I would also point out that that assumes that things kind of keep on going the way that they're going. And we'll talk about this in, in a little bit here that, uh, you know, we can't necessarily assume that with President Trump. So I, I would yeah. say well, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to throw a little cold water on the, the Democratic hopes in that uh, the intensity you would expect uh, that this would be a little bit of an exception because it's hard to say that uh, Democrats weren't intense uh, uh, in opposition to uh, President Trump in that uh, in the most recent election. And uh, so I, I, well, I don't know. I don't well, know that you get that, the uh, um, the I don't I don't know that the intensity is going to be that much higher in the midterm uh, than in the uh, the regular election. I think what what happens is. Well, I shouldn't say intensity. I think what what how the intensity on the Democratic side is probably going to be the same. The intensity on the Republican side will probably be a little less. I'll disagree with you. That's, that's my prediction. That's I'll, I guess in terms of turnout, that's how I would if I were modeling it. That's what I would do. Well, I'll disagree with you a little bit there. I think that uh, the Democrats, at least uh, prior to the presidential election, were fairly confident that uh, were fairly confident that Hillary Clinton would win. It was like you know uh, Atlanta Falcons fans <laughs> at, at, no you know, at halftime of the Super Bowl. Exactly, you know, and so it wasn't really that much of a concern. And this is a whole different thing. So, but but in any case, you know, 2018 a long ways off. But as a Democrat, I was encouraged by uh, the showing in, in Kansas. And I certainly hope that the, the uh, that Georgia kind of continues this trend. And, and I am looking forward already very much so to the 2018 elections. And we will see. And just to point out, Tom Price's seat is it was the uh, seat formerly held by uh, House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, so, that, I mean, that gives, gives you an idea of the kind of district that we're, we're talking about. Very conservative. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's wealthy. It's suburban. It's southern. Uh, it's, it, that's, that's a, that's a tough, uh, tough road to hoe there for Democrat. Yeah. And special elections aside, there's some, you know, there's more and more polling data suggesting that a lot of these kind of, uh, better educated, wealthier suburban voters who actually did turn out for Donald Trump are, uh, having some second thoughts about certain things. And, and that, that certainly uh, plays into the, the Democrats' favor, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. So, you know, more domestic news. President Trump decided to play a game of healthcare chicken with congressional Democrats this week, threatening to withhold cost-sharing subsidies to insurers unless Democrats became more willing to consider Obamacare repeal and replace legislation. Now, if withheld, these subsidies, which totaled around $7 billion last year, would almost certainly lead to a significant rate increase from insurers and might drive more insurers out of the Obamacare exchanges, which have already seen a number of major insurers depart. Now, Democrats spiral. Well, yeah, that's 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 bogus. But anyway, Democrats <laughs> responded by saying that if Trump followed through, they wouldn't work with Republicans to keep the government funded when the current appropriation runs out on April 28th, which is just three days after come after Congress comes back from its spring break. So, uh, Jay, Jay, what do you think about what uh, President Trump said? I, I I like the idea that <clears throat> that uh, he's sort of pulling the levers and in. in uh, that he can. Um, so I, you know, we'll, we'll see how it, how effective it is. Um, but I think he's, he sort of pointed out that 
if if he were to choose to do this, and there would be a court case that would follow and and so forth uh, about his authority to do that, because I think the authority of President Obama to have entered into these subsidies in the first place is is questionable. Um, uh, but uh, but look, it's it shows he's using every tool in the toolbox, uh, and and uh, it also highlights, I think, the the. Uh, uh, situation of of uh, Obamacare that is sort of on life support. If these subsidies weren't there, uh, you would have an even even worse situation. Um, so you know, I I don't know. I don't know that this drives Democrats to the bargaining table. I, I don't necessarily think it does, uh, but it does embolden Republicans a little bit uh, to sort of you know straighten their backs a little bit and, and say, yeah, let's let's move forward with this. Um, uh, and and that is something that that uh, President Trump indicated last week, and this was a little bit of a surprise, is that he wants to take a second shot at health care reform and fixing that uh, before he goes on to any sort of tax package. Um, yeah. So that's I, I think he's serious about this, and um, we'll 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 see how it how it plays out. You know, I, I, before we get into the why they would revisit health care reform, and I think that's an important issue to cover, I wanted to give people a little bit of history on the subsidies. Now, these subsidies probably are unconstitutional. Uh, the House sued the Obama administration in 2014 about this because there these subsidies were never actually appropriated, and a federal court actually ruled against the administration, but allowed them to keep on paying the subsidies while it appealed. And there hasn't been any definitive word yet on whether or not the Trump administration plans to continue this appeal. And, and you might say, well, why would they? And, and, you know, that's a reasonable question, given that you know, President Trump is definitely not a big fan of Obamacare. Well, you know, one way to look at this is we tend to see all these things through the lens of Democrat versus Republican, and that certainly is a, a good lens to see a lot of these things through. But you could also take a look at this through the lens of executive versus legislative authority. And there are, you know, plenty of between-branch turf battles that go on there. And so uh, looked at through that lens, the Trump administration might want to say, well, this is about the executive's ability to do this sort of thing, and we might want to kind of push on on this, and we, we don't know either way. So... I mean, the best thing, you know, I don't know. That's that's maybe I don't I don't know that because Trump is sort of a different kind of animal. Whether he he thinks that that way or not, well, I think his advisors do. The, the prerogative of the executive versus the legislative. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, you know, yeah, I, and I think some of his advisors certainly might look at it that way. But but in any case, the the ideal outcome, at least as far as I'm concerned, and as far actually as the healthcare insurers are concerned, is that this actually be put into an appropriations bill, which is exactly what the House Democrats are saying they are going to do when the, when the new appropriation comes up. And if that fails, then there's the potential for a government shutdown. And so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about, well, you know, President Trump is trying to use all the levers and so forth. But, but I also think that he's still learning about how uh, presidential pronouncements can create a lot of uncertainty in markets and markets hate uncertainty. So regardless yeah. of what happens, you know, if you're the president, just like if you're, uh, if you're the president and you say something that matters in a way that it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, real estate developer, reality show host. And, yeah, exactly. and, and so I don't think he fully appreciates that yet, or maybe he does and he just doesn't care. I don't know. But, you know, this is this is obviously a, a pretty big deal. And and we talked about this earlier is will 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 the uh, Trump administration essentially try to sabotage 
Obamacare, which would have serious well, consequences for millions of people. I mean, these are, you know, we're talking about real people's lives and real people's access to health care simply to, you know, get rid of it. And it seems like the answer to this might be, unfortunately, it looked like at first it was like, well, no, maybe. But now it seems like maybe he is willing to go that route, which I think well, is really I'm, unfortunate. I'm going to go sort of one further in, 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 that, in that analysis, because I think you're, you're sort of onto something. And uh, maybe he says these things uh, with a purpose, uh, or maybe he doesn't. But by bringing this into play, the other thing he brings in is the insurance industry. Um, the insurance industry that had, to some extent, been—I uh, don't want to—I don't know—co-opted might be might be a strong word, uh, but he got along with Obamacare, not really uh, opposed it because of things like these subsidies, where they could more or less be be held harmless. Um, so I, I think what happens is, is maybe this next go around, some of these insurers, uh, take a look at, at, at what could happen, uh, and, uh, get more involved in the process. Cause I think it's sometimes, uh, people forget that there are more players just than the Republicans and the Democrats. There's also, uh, industry. And, and I think, uh, you know, the insurance industry coming in strong on this to support one plan or another uh, or some kind of compromise that that could move the needle a little bit. Yeah, I, I certainly think that that's 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 possible. And, and, and while I mean, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of aspects of Obamacare, but I think the, the problem with that uncertainty is, again, you know, there are millions of people who you know are leading real lives and, and need need this help. And if you just disrupt these markets in this big way, and you're going to, you're going to run into some problems and people are going to be hurt and people are going to die. And that's, that's yeah. not a small thing. Other point I wanted to bring up is you know, some folks might say, well, why is it that all of a sudden they're, they're trying so hard to get healthcare back again? And it's, it's one of these things where, and this is something I think that president Trump is learning that everything is connected. Uh, you can't mm -hmm. just do one thing. And it turns out that the way and this is part of the reason why I believe Paul Ryan was pushing to do health care first is that if if the health care reform that uh, House Republicans had wanted to go through had gone through, there would have been a projected cost savings that would have been pretty significant, which is what happens when you kick millions and millions of people off of health care. Another story. But <laughs> well, no, that's the truth. You know, uh, but the point being is that that savings would have made it a lot easier under various budget rules to do the tax reform, which is something exactly. That yeah. And, and all yeah, of these they, they, things. They, they've realized that they need the savings from the uh, Obamacare rollback to fund the, the tax plan that they want to fund. Yeah, there, there's that. And then there's also these kind of weird rules that have to do with what you can do and how much you can do under reconciliation rules. And reconciliation rules, just as a reminder, everyone, are the special rules that allow essentially uh, the Senate to pass things that can't be filibustered. And it's very kind of limited. We won't get too into the weeds on that. But there's all this stuff at play. It's mostly budget stuff that yeah. you can do. Under reconciliation, exactly. as opposed to pure policy stuff. I guess it's probably the easiest way to explain it. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. And so there's all this going on, and that's why they're going back to healthcare, uh, not because you know they just are really, really determined, but but because it's going to make some other stuff potentially easier if they can get it done. And I don't know that there's necessarily. I'm not very optimistic about that because it seems like the Freedom Caucus is not really interested in budging a whole lot. And I don't really think that President Trump is going to 
get a lot of leverage with Democrats in the House. I think they're willing to force the issue. You know, during the during the Obama administration, the Republicans were very successful in, in what some people have called hostage taking, basically saying, like, we're going to shut this thing down if you don't give us what, what we want. And Democrats hated that. President Obama hated that. But one thing is it, it seemed to be, you know, at least uh, somewhat effective. And I think Democrats are going to are going to, if pushed, use the same sort of tactics. And I wouldn't be surprised to see either a government shutdown uh, or, you know, President Trump blinking on this, although he'll never admit to that. He tends to, as one person put it, declare victory before retreating. So I don't know if that's going to be the case here, but we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, fairly shortly because, again, that current appropriation runs out on April 28th. So Congress is going to have to move pretty quickly on this. Yep. Yes, we we shall see. You know, uh, finally, uh, there's some good news. It's always nice to have some good news, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know, according to multiple reports, and this is something we talked about a little bit last week, senior Trump advisor Steve Bannon has lost considerable influence with the president. And in a recent interview with the Wall Street Journal, you probably saw this, Jay, Trump called Bannon (laughs) a guy who works for me. I love that. Uh, (laughs) and, and, And he told the New York Post that I'm my own strategist and Steve is a good guy, but I told him to straighten it out or I will. Uh, According to sources close to Trump, the president feels Bannon is not a team player and that his advice has been less than stellar, especially on the immigration ban orders and Obamacare repeal. So first off, Jay, do you think that Bannon's on his way out? Well, you know, I I don't know. Certainly, the signs would tend to to point that way. There's there was always the, there was this weird sort of round of the last week or two of of Kremlinology, sort of of, of looking at the pictures and seeing who's seat, sitting where and so forth, um, which I, I think is maybe a little bit silly. Um, for our younger listeners, Kremlinology was when uh, the U.S. government uh, used to look at pictures of the May Day parade and see who was standing closest to the premier. Uh, to try to determine who had the most influence and who was most likely the next uh, successor. Um, uh, but I think you don't have to resort to the, you know, who's sitting where type stuff. And you can just look at uh, the policy and and what's been happening. Um, we've had a lot fewer Trump tweets uh, the last two weeks. Uh, we've seen things, uh, as I said earlier, of, of Trump essentially acting like you would expect a, again, I'll, use the regular Republican president. Uh, I mean, these are things that you could have seen, you know, Mitt Romney or John McCain uh, doing with, you know, for example, the Syria bombing, the meeting with uh, China, uh, taking those kinds of actions. Uh, the, also, the the under, underground buzz, as it's reported um, in the various uh, press, is that uh, Gerald Kushner and um, uh, Cohn, uh, another advisor, are sort of rising uh, while Bannon's uh, uh, star is is setting, um, uh, and that, that those had been sort of the two opposing camps. Uh, and I, I think that uh, you know that that may be what's happening. That seems to be what's at least been reflected the last the last week or so. Um, uh, there's there's also uh, reporting that Trump is now taking more advice of uh, business executives. Uh, so again, moving away from the the populist themes uh, that he campaigned on, 
Uh, and and I think that that goes to what we're always saying that governing is different than campaigning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take a look on a host of issues, not just the Bannon thing, but uh, uh, President Trump, when he was candidate, Trump uh, report repeatedly called China a currency manipulator, and now he said, "Well, actually, it turns out that they're not." So I'm going to stop saying that, uh, and will not formally declare them one. He's changed his mind uh, somewhat on Syria, on Vladimir Putin, on uh, whether we should uh, continue the import. Uh, the, sorry the export-import the bank. bank. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, uh, there, there are other things, too, uh, moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, uh, you know, a bunch of other things. Uh, also, really. I would say uh, softer on uh, Mexico. You know, I think uh, to, a, to a certain the, degree, maybe, I, I see a little, he's certainly not pushing as hard as a lot of his more nationalist kind of American first, America first uh, supporters would want him to be. And, you know, I think there are a couple ways to look at this. Uh now, for one, the one I think Freedom Caucus member at one point uh, tweeted back at the president that the swamp drains you. And that's, you know, <laughs> one way, the kind of negative way, if you're if you're a, that sort of Trump supporter saying that, well, you know what, just this, this massive system is just going to wear everyone down to a nub. You can't fight D.C. because it's just too pervasive and it's going to take even the most mavericky of mavericks and just sort of turn them. That's kind of the, uh, the, I guess, the disappointing view if you're a Trump fan uh, for those reasons. But if you're more of kind of a typical sort of Main Street Republican, you say, well, you know, this is this is good. He's learning. He's evolving. He's becoming kind of one of us in uh, a very real sense, which you could kind of see that from the beginning. I mean, hell, half of his administration are former Goldman Sachs employees, you know, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. and so uh, kind of the more things change, the more things stay the same, at least in some of these aspects, which is not to say, and I want to make this clear, I'm not trying to normalize Donald Trump here. I mean, I think he's, uh, I, I think he lies like hell. He's a, he's a completely unreliable and predictable person. And, and I would almost rather have any normal Republican as opposed to Donald Trump in his office, especially given the fact that he knows so little and seems to care so little about this. I never thought I'd look back and say, you know what, George W. Bush was practically a policy wonk compared to this guy. And that's that's how it is. And, and the concern you have is that he listens to the last person in the room who gives him a convincing argument, you know, and and, and that, in fact, was one reason why some Republicans weren't so upset that he actually won the nomination and then the presidency is they thought he'd be this empty vessel into which they could pour their own, you know, their own brand of domestic and and foreign policy. And, and it seems like maybe that's the case. I don't know that that's such a great thing. I don't know that I want a president as an empty vessel into which people can pour things. Well, empty vessel, I think might be overstating it, but I I think Trump has always been, and he, he did campaign on this to some extent, uh, as a pragmatist, uh, I mean, he's he's never been an ideologue in that, you know, you can't really say he's got a comprehensive ideology ideology. Now, he sort of has Winning. This this is ideology. vibe, I guess. Uh, but again, to call it an ideology, I think overstates it. Um, so I, I think it, he is looking at this as, you know, look, he's he's a business guy. Uh, he is a pragmatist. Uh, he is, uh, you know going to do what he needs to do to, to get done what he thinks needs to get done. Uh, and, um, you know, he also sort of separates, you know, the world into sort of winners and losers. Uh, and if you look at uh, what we've had, um, you know, so far, uh, Steve Bannon's been in the loser column. Oh, um, absolutely. But but do you yeah, think he so. needs to be more involved in, in policy? And do you think he's even temperamentally 
capable of being more involved in policy. I mean, I, I don't think that he needs to pour over briefing books, you know, you know, and so forth all the time. But it seems to me that that he would benefit greatly from being more engaged in in some of the details, at least. And I'm wondering, actually, if it's even something. I mean, he's this this guy's no spring chicken, and he, he's never been a detail guy. And can he actually make himself more of a detail guy if the stakes are as high as they are? You know, and I don't you know, know. maybe. I mean, again, the sense that I get, um, just just you know, watching what what we've watched for the past three months, um. And the whole, you know, team of rivals type type idea of, of the folks on his cabinet is he says, let's get this done. I want this done. Everybody come and, and bring me your plans. Uh, and then they fight it out. And he sort of weighs in on one side or the other at the end. Uh, and I see him more as, as that. He's that kind of executive that, you know, you, you bring their plans up to the boss and he says, OK, you make me a pitch. You make me a pitch. Um, and, and we'll see which one I like better. Uh, well, yeah. So, you know, again, I'm not sitting in cabinet meetings with them, um, but but that's that's the sense I get, uh, and and that's certainly different than what we've had in uh, and what we've come to expect from the presidency. Yeah. Um, well, but, I think but I it's think, also, you know, well, well I think that sort of model inherently with that sort of a, approach. Well, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think that sort of model is a lot harder to pull off when you're dealing with you know the. the the leader of the free world, the United States government. Well, exactly. I think that's one of the things where it's it's much different running a business uh, than running a country. Exactly. And, you know, some some people can pull it off. You know, the whole team of rivals thing. So, you know, worked for Abraham Lincoln. But Donald Trump, I feel very confident to say, is no Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Before we close, I'm hoping everyone listening to us on a podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or whatever – We'll consider taking just a few seconds to use that built-in share function in your app to share this episode with your social media followers and maybe even include a short message about why you think we're worth your time, which we know uh, is valuable and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Sharing on social media is probably the single best way to get the word out about the show and we would really appreciate it. Okay, that's it for today's show. If you've got any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. You can also follow us at, on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicsguyspage or on Twitter at politicsguys. We'll be back with a new interview on Wednesday and our weekly news analysis and discussion show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.